Welcome to Bad Patient, Malpractice Makes Perfect. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Bears. And we are two non-medical, non-experts sifting through this week's health news. So what were our topics this week, Laura? Hairdresser states man flu in 100. So just so you guys know, every week Laura sends me four hints. And then right before we start recording, she sends me the actual story. So Laura has seen these, but I have not. And we also take listener questions. If you want to submit a question, you can email us at hello at thebadpatient.com or tweet us at thebadpatient. And we actually have a listener question this week, Laura. Yay! I know, right? So this is from Steve in Ohio. He asked us to look into the link between physical health and financial well-being. And uh, this one, you could have guessed this one. Is there a connection? Yeah. I mean, basically, financial well-being is is a form of stress. So if your finances aren't doing well, like any other form of stress, it can negatively impact your overall health. The more stressful you find your situation, the worse your health will be. So it's just like another depressing way that socioeconomic factors disproportionately affect those who can least afford to you know, miss out. So it's a, it's a, it's a social determinant of health really. And it's something that, I mean, that I think we will see increasing attention paid to as kind of a background factor. Cause I know there's been a lot of research into race. Um, but I don't know, honestly, this is just super depressing and yet another way that I think, you know, the rich get richer and the poor, get poorer. I mean, it's everything from lifespan, heart disease, blood pressure, stress levels, cancer incidents, everything is, is affected by stress and financial stress is a form of physical stress. So, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a really, really tough way of, of looking at things. Um, the article I found that I liked about it uh, was called The High Price of Debt, high Household Financial Debt and Its Impact on Mental and Physical Health. Um, I can't... I'm not sure of the journal title. That, that sounds like a really good article for this topic. <laughs> um, I was listening to NPR and they were talking um, about this, and I know you've teased this question a few times, and they're talking about how uh, Native Americans um, have a certain level of um, type of, like, insurance that's been guaranteed, like, as part of their, um, like, treaty that they gave up their lands and part of the agreement of the things that they would get in return were was health care um, provided for. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that it actually works is that there's a certain level there's a certain amount of money in the pot that's uh, insufficient typically for um, for people so they know that um, by June you don't go to the doctor anymore because there's no more oh. funds available for care and no. you don't go unless it's a life or limb kind of issue um, Jesus. 
And so I was just thinking about that. So, like, you know, if you have a private insurance, then it's not less of an issue for Native Americans. But people who rely upon this particular type are typically low income um, and don't have private insurance. And so they also feel like um, in the past that they have been discriminated against by doctors um, and healthcare providers because they, when they see that that is how they're paying, that they know Ugh. that there's a limit to funds that so they're, they're more likely everything. to slip through the cracks. So I just think it's like just oh one gosh. more thing. Um, so I just yeah. like thought about, about this question when I heard that article, I heard that discussion on N- NPR. Yeah, and certainly Native Americans have been, like, even for people who are disproportionately affected, I mean, it's just hard to calculate the magnitude of the harm that was done to them. Um, I did, I found the journal, it's Social Science and Medicine, and the, the sad thing about this is that this article, which is from 2013, so it's been a few years, but had said that there wasn't all that much research into financial determinants of health. But everything I've looked at has pretty much just said, yeah, I mean, it's related, right? And I remember that a few years ago, I did a story for an online publication in Cincinnati looking at lifespan and socioeconomic factors, and it was shocking. I mean, the average lifespan in the poorest neighborhoods was in the 60s, and and in the richest neighborhoods was in the mid-80s. I mean, that's a 20-year a twenty year gap. And yeah. it's just hard. I think it's sometimes it's hard to... To be like, hey, I'm going to go to the grocery store tomorrow and spend like a dollar fifty on this special Cliff Nutrition Bar that I super duper love, and there are people that are going to die at sixty three from entirely preventable causes, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, mm, yes. So are they connected? Yes, they are deeply, deeply connected. And um, when the more factors that people have against them, which to be honest, seem like the more degrees of separation you have from a white, you know, male, the the more profound the impact. So if you say like white white women might be more impacted and then um, minority women and then minority women with disability, you know, you can go on and on. So I found a little bit of data from this nonprofit called Higher Heights looking at black women um, who often are cited in these studies as being disproportionately affected and so, for example, black women are 21 times more likely to die from HIV AIDS than white women. So that's white women, not even men. And they represent the second highest rates of cervical cancer. They're more likely to die from it from any other group. Um, and actually, this is a really cool uh, page. Higher Heights is promoting women in black women in politics and just talking about the disproportionate ways that women, black women are represented. And um if you think the health numbers are shocking, I mean, black women are earning 60 cents for every dollar earned by a white male. Um, only 33% own homes, only 23% own stock. The median wealth of a single black woman is $100 compared to $41,000 for single white women. That's from the uh, Insight Center for Community Economic Development. So um, higherheightsforamerica.org is the nonprofit. And to be honest, I that was a source I went to today because we are coming off of the Alabama elections, and uh, which were decided by black women. And so I, when we had this question, I it got me thinking about black women and and their contributions and how perhaps we don't really appreciate that impact. And so, yeah, 
That's awesome. I know. So, yeah, really cool nonprofit that's trying to get more representation. Awesome. You ready for our first article? Sure, let's go. So, it comes from NPR, um, and it's looking below the locks, teaching hairdressers to spot melanoma. Cool. So, um, it is talking about uh, the... um, a report published in uh, the Journal for American Medical Association Dermatology um, had researchers show um, from University of Southern California and University of California, Colorado, Denver, um, made educational training videos for hairdressers to look um, to help them be able to um, screen for. Uh, this type of cancer because uh, when was the last time you looked at the top of your head, Robin? Um, it's been never. I mean, how would I look at the top of my head? I can't see it. Yeah, it's like like multiple mirrors and like uh, mm-hmm. angles that in body contortions. But it's um helping hairdressers feel more confident and being able to uh, notice anything. Uh, unusual or different to help uh, their clients, you know, to refer them to a dermatologist if they they see anything unusual. That's really um, cool. Yeah, and it's talking about how it's not necessarily like a one and done. It's something that you have to keep uh, training people and reminding people to look for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it definitely can help. It cites uh, an example that a hairdresser. Um, um, save someone's told, life. Save somebody's life because of um, it was pointed out to them because it was on on the head. So like you can like yeah. see things on your rest of your body, you know, pretty well. But you, you know your, your head, your scalp is um, much much more difficult to spot. And I suppose, especially for men, as your hair as the hair is getting thinner and people are getting older, there could be more incidents of of things cropping up right because the hair isn't providing as much covering which could be even more dangerous also who puts sunscreen on the top of their head right i mean i guess a lot of people wear hats but not always necessarily enough yeah you know i think melanoma is a cancer that it's it's one of the few cancers that we may not be afraid of we may not be afraid enough of you know because there's still Mm -hmm. so much tanning and um and so many practices that don't make, I mean, I think the association of tans with healthfulness is driving part of it. And there is, I mean, there are, there are benefits to getting some sun, primarily vitamin D production. But melanoma is also one of the cancers where early detection is really important. So some cancers, I think, I don't have a good statistic on which ones and are, are better and worse. But melanoma, I just really quickly looked I mean, this if up. You're, if you're going to have the C word, I mean, melanoma might be the better one to might get. Might be the better one to get. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Come on, like, melanoma. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm not going to. No, not, not come on, melanoma. Okay. All right. Listen to this, though. And this is from cancer.net, which uh, I don't, I don't know. Is that is that a good source? I don't know. But they're saying five-year survival for melanoma that's a single site is over 98%. 98% is like pretty solid because a survival rate of above 90% is usually considered very, very good. So um, 
I mean, anecdotally, I, I don't have that as like a citable fact. And then, but once melanoma has spread to other parts of the body, the source is saying survival rate is 18% after five years. So, you know. If you catch it early. Yeah. If you catch absolutely. it early. And other parts of the body, not meaning like you have multiple melanomas on your skin, meaning it has spread to other body systems. So, um, yeah. you know, I think usually lymph nodes tend to be first. And they were saying the survival rate on that for after five years is 62%. So catching it sooner is better. That being said, I have done the whole dermatologist skin check thing, and all I can tell you is I walked away with some really nasty scars. Mm. Yeah. It turns out that, like, you can have a dermatologist do the screening, and then they can either chop the whole thing off if they think they find something suspicious, or they can biopsy a small piece of it, and then if it turns out to be cancerous, then you can go back. But I, you know, was not super informed, and my person both times was like oh we'll just remove it because that's easier you don't have to come back but then you're left with this big thing so i mean listen i want everyone to follow the doctor's recommendations for screenings and everything but just know if your dermatologist is coming at you with a scalpel there is another option yeah always ask yeah all right you ready for our second article i am let's do it Okay. Um, so it comes from CNN.com and it is uh, America's healthiest and least healthy states. Oh, I think I already looked at this because I wanted to see if Oregon was uh, was toward the top. <laughs> so Massachusetts, Hawaii, Vermont, Utah, and Connecticut are ranked on the top five. While West Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi were ranked the least happiest, healthiest, not happiest, healthiest, <laughs> um, according to the United Health Foundation. So there's quite a different, uh, different ways that this is determined, but it's, um, it's a it's a combination of risk factors such as infectious disease, obesity. obesity physical inactivity, smoking, infant mortality, as well as air pollution levels. You know what's um, bad? You know what's bad about And the about availability these? of healthcare providers. Okay. I'm saying, I've seen a bunch of these. You know, like, you've seen this story before, right? Yeah, Seems every like every, year. Every year. <laughs> but there's different ways that they calculate it, and I swear no matter what way they use, it seems like southern states always come out the lowest, right? Yes. I mean... Yeah. You know, it's just like you're never surprised. Well, yeah, because um there's some serious health issues in southern states. Yeah. Yes. Massachusetts uh was named the healthiest taking out Hawaii's 5-year reign. Bam. And that's one of the re- reasons is that uh the uninsured residents is just 2.7% of the population. Wow. I thought that was very interesting. Because, um, like, Massachusetts is where Mitt Romney is from, right? And that's what Obamacare mm-hmm. was based on, was Romney care. Yeah. Wait. I'm so sorry. This is, like, the dumbest question. But they're referring to it as the Bay State? Massachusetts? Am I supposed to? Oh, Massachusetts Bay. All yeah. Right. Like, the whole side of it is okay. a bay. I was like, the Bay State? Like... I don't know. I Not just, the Bay Area. That's in California. 
not Beyonce. <laughs> Beyonce, that's different. No, I just, I was, I was thinking, yeah, when it said Bay State, I was like, are we calling California that? And then I got confused about this whole, this whole story. Yeah. High number of mental health providers. So it doesn't matter how many people have a mental illness. As long as you have a ton of therapists, you get a good score. Well, I think it's access as well. Yeah. You yeah. know, having the access. I agree. And look at this. Mississippi and Louisiana ranked 49th and 50th, uh, quoting from the piece, have major health challenges, according to the report, including a high prevalence of sm- smoking, obesity, and children in poverty. So there's that there's that financial aspect, mm-hmm. right? Yep, connecting it all together. Yeah. Plus, we're getting rid of the CHIP program now, right? Or that's in jeopardy. Do you know what the CHIP program is? It's like Children's Health Insurance Program or something. Mm -hmm. It's like a federal. It's been reauthorized by the House um, by using using, uh, Medicaid uh, and ACA dollars. So, which is why most uh, Democrats voted against it. (laughs) Okay, no. so so not really great news, but news. Yeah, well, my my congressman was uh, insulted that somebody said that he needs to authorize it, and he already has. So, okay, all right. W- was that someone you or someone else? Oh no, I don't. Oh, okay. Speak to, I don't. I just read his Facebook page. I don't. I don't engage on Facebook. Engage. With them. <laughs> I know. Uh, I haven't really reached out to my, well, I have reached out to my congressperson, but mainly to say I, I wasn't like, you're doing it all wrong, I guess. So you could argue that my feedback was not very useful. Um, okay. So the South is not very healthy. Massachusetts is healthy. Maybe thanks to Mitt Romney. We don't know. Oregon, not in the list, not in the top five. I'm shocked. I think we all need to work harder. Because, like, Connecticut's in the top five, and I just want to say it's very cold there and very difficult to work out there, and I just, how could Oregon, how could we be behind? You know what? Maybe it's all the white supremacists here. You think Get it together, exercise? Oregon. Come on. <laughs> I don't live here, so we can be the sixth healthiest state, the eighth healthiest state. I'm here because I want to be top five. Come so if you're on. in Oregon and you're listening, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, we're getting scolded in this piece, too, right? Yeah. Uh, the former director of the CDC says everything looks terrible. Uh, this guy from the Kaiser Family Foundation is depressed about our prospects. We're spending more on healthcare, and we die sooner. We need to do a timeout and figure out how to do this better. That sounds like what you say to your five-year-old. Like, we are going to do a timeout, and we are going to figure out how to fix this behavior. What does that even mean? I think it's a really uh, relevant point. So the United States spends a ton of money on health care, right? But we're ranked 28th out of 35. Oh, yeah. Um, We're not doing well at all. So, so what are we paying for, right? Like, that's, like, what we need I to think, figure out. I don't know if there's uh, yeah. a way to fix it magically, but, um, <laughs> but it's saying, you, like, if, even yeah. what we pay for isn't, you know, we're not that great, so. No, I think we have, like, all these middlemen and, should I say middle people? What's the gender neutral version of middleman? Middle people. 
we have all these entities who are getting between us and our healthcare. Because sometimes I think like, okay, we spend all this money and we say we're spending it on healthcare. But in my case, like I'm thinking, okay, I pay a health insurance premium and the number of claims I filed with my health insurance company in the last 12 months is zero. Maybe, maybe no, that was more than 12 months ago. So zero in my case, zero claims. And the, you know, 12 months before that, maybe it was like one. And, and so it's like, we're saying we're spending all this money on healthcare, but if I just pay for health insurance and then I don't end up really being able to use it, I almost want to say, no, I'm just, I'm spending money on like corporate America, right? I'm not, that money is not actually providing healthcare for me. Like, What's the political argument? People always say like health insurance does not equal health care. And that's when they're talking about the problems of having too few primary care providers. It's like just by giving everyone insurance, we haven't given them health care because they may not have access. Or like Mm -hmm. if you give someone a a really high deductible plan, then, you know, and then they don't end up being able to spend any money. I'm not sure I'm going with this, Laura, but I just... Yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected, and I, I don't know if I see a lot of helpfulness in a quote of, we need to do a timeout and figure out how to do this better. Like, okay, you and me right now, what does it look like if we, quote unquote, do a timeout? As a nation, we do a timeout. We just say, what does that mean? Like, we say, all the doctor's offices are closed and no one has health insurance. Timeout. <laughs> no one has health care. Let's think. Or like, what, what does that mean? Seriously, what does that mean? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Just like, we need to do a timeout. That's like saying like the weather needs to, whoa, we've had a lot of hurricanes and stuff. Like the weather needs to do a timeout. We need to regroup. Like there is no timeout. Or maybe I just don't understand what that person is saying, but uh, I just, I feel like they're just saying generic things to us. Okay. They gave us four steps that they want us to follow. It's 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 not oh. ABCs. Yeah. Just it's the worst suggestions. I I hated oh it. Oh, and they're only they're only relevant suggestions for deaths from cardiovascular disease and drug use, which are Okay, so they want us to Oh my god. Follow the Million Hearts program, which is for heart disease, aspirin when appropriate, blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking cessation. How is that a C? Sm- I guess C smoking cessation. All right, that's terrible. Uh, reducing smoking. That's two. <laughs> Number three is for the government to take 10 steps to reduce the opioid epidemic, which makes it seem like that should be like a three through 12, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, step number four or 14 is to decrease obesity by measures such as taxes on sugar, sweetened beverages. Okay, I don't really... These are not... These are not relevant to this article. Like, they're... I think these are too narrow. And even in being narrow, they're not specific enough. It's like, decrease obesity by measures such as... I feel like this has become such a big problem that we maybe don't even know. Like, we've stopped caring about it. It's like the whole diet and exercise thing. Like, nobody wants to hear it anymore. Well... The South is tired of hearing about all this stuff, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I don't think we have a quick fix on this one. No magic bullet. (laughs) Let's move on to a story that we might have a quick fix for. 
Okay. So this one comes from the Atlantic uh, Journal Constitution. Uh, man flu is real. Research says men experience worse symptoms. Um, so, uh, you should man- see my face right now. <laughs> Man flu is uh, what people say in the vernacular of about men who overreact when they're sick. But Dr. Kyle <laughs> Sue is a clinical assistant professor at the fa- in family medicine in the Memorial University in Newfoundland. Uh, published an article in the British Medical Journal uh, contending that men experience uh, worse symptoms in f- of cold and, and flu than women. So there's never been a research done on this. Um, so he basically <laughs> pulled a bunch of data and tried to figure out whether or not there was um, a correlation to whether or not men um, have like a weaker immune system and therefore oh, have a, a, a longer, more worse symptoms that last longer and are more likely to be hospitalized and um, die from them. Super interesting to me is that it says in the bottom is in Ohio, for example, the flu is <laughs> impacting populations earlier than usual this year. The Ohio Department of Health state says that the five-year average of the cases is significantly higher from this same time last year. I thought that's super weird that like the Atlantic Journal, because it's in Georgia, because I checked. But if you look to see who yeah. wrote this and where it's fucking from, Dayton Daily, Daily News. News. Yeah, I know. I was initially, Dayton's I was like, wow, Ohio thought, got like, a call out. I was like, that's weird that we got a call out about this. This is super, super strange. <laughs> I, and, and then I was like, nope, they just pulled this fucking thing. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, too, because the piece quotes someone who was quoted in The Guardian, which is a, a British newspaper. Yeah. So, so, so it's like when you first look at it, you're like, oh, like the study, Newfoundland, then person cited from a, is from a story in a UK newspaper, then example from Ohio, but the actual, is this Atlanta as in Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah. <laughs> so God knows what people are thinking of this in Georgia, but I'm curious to know whether or not... Wait, why is this so short? No, we need more info. This is like five paragraphs long. What is the... Oh, my God. Luckily, they linked to the study or I'd be freaking out. It's too long. Didn't read. <laughs> TLDR. <laughs> um, but it's it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek um, looking at the research. Um But he thinks mm. that there there might be some... Some actual correlation that way. Okay, but listen to... This is the conclusion from the actual paper. The concept of man flu as commonly defined is potentially unjust. Their conclusion is kind of that they're not sure, but it's men may not be exaggerating symptoms, but have weaker immune responses to viral respiratory illnesses, leading to greater morbidity and mortality than seen in women. So that that means (laughs) they're saying men men might not be... uh, Buck up! Yeah, they actually have. They may actually have a weaker immune system. Uh, they give some tips. There are benefits to energy conversa- con- ugh, conservation when ill. I'm going to skip those. 
But this is my favorite. This is my favorite line from what I have skimmed so far. Perhaps now is the time for male-friendly spaces equipped with enormous televisions and reclining chairs to be set up where men can recover from the debil- debil- debilitating effects of man flu in safety and comfort. Sorry, I'm having a little uh, mouthful of rocks today, but jeez. <laughs> I mean, honestly... Higher quality research is needed to clarify other aspects of man flu. So this is kind of a study that didn't come through with a lot of It's because uh, it didn't actually do any studying. Yeah. It just looked at everybody else's research and said, yeah, there might be something here. They got this published in the British Medical Journal. I mean, geez. I'm trying to Must see. Must have been a slow month. Okay, one thing. Yeah, well, you know... That's not, that is not the dumbest point you've ever made because <laughs> sometimes in publications at the end of the year, there's a lot of people out of the office and you got to get the content out. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying this in any professional or official capacity, but sometimes, you know, you got to do what you got to do. One thing that's interesting that the study, I'm not going to say the study found is, is kind of like a lit review, but, um, they're suggesting that women are more responsive to vaccinations than men so women may be more protected against the flu that's kind of interesting men tend to be more susceptible to complications and they die more often from the flu uh bunch of pansies but the other thing was that women tended to take care of themselves better, cutting down activities in response to only one symptom as opposed to men who who did not. So, mm, interesting. You know, I really interesting topic. Not a great wealth of information here. Also, I don't know, like, is man flu? I've... I suppose I've heard it. Maybe it's more prevalent across the pond. Because I don't know if I really... I don't think I would use that term. Would you? No. Yeah. But somebody (laughs) is. Can we see a study on why people are using this? I mean, if if someone were to say, like, women, woman flu, women flu, I'd be super offended. So I, I don't know. I don't know if this is my favorite thing ever. You know? Like, I kind of think there's a little ickiness happening here oh yeah it's for sure sexist (laughs) yeah i mean like come on and the the headline research says men experience worse symptoms yeah no i guess that's i mean the research is kind of like "Eh." it's more of a bold call than a yeah (laughs) i mean the conclusion conclusion is yeah, the conclusion is that, that calling it man flu as a way of making fun of them for supposedly exaggerating their symptoms is, quote, potentially unjust. Potentially. So, I don't know. It might it might be totally just. Yeah. Hey, on the flip side, props to Dayton Daily News for selling their content elsewhere. Because not all smaller newspapers do that. A lot of times the stuff you see is, like, from the wire, like, from the Associated Press. So, to see a Dayton Daily News story in a major... Atlanta newspaper is uh, a sign that they're making some they're making some good profit decisions. You know what I mean? That's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So what up you cool babies? Way to go, Dayton. Way to bring way to bring Ohio to the world. <laughs> Make sure those Georgians know know about our uh 
What are they? Georgians? Person from Georgia. Can we just call them peaches? (laughs) Okay. Are you ready for our last article? No. I want to know what a person from Georgia is called. Okay. Okay. It's Georgians. G-E-O-R-G-I-A-N-S. Is that Georgians or George? George. I think it's Georgians. I don't know. As long as you call them anything but late for dinner. (laughs) Dad joke. All right. Next story. Our last story (laughs) comes from Times, which is uh, people who live to 100 have these common traits. Oh my god! In common. Is this a story that's supposed to make? Is there a story every week that's supposed to make me angry? Is this it? <laughs> no. <laughs> there totally is, and this is totally it. <laughs> my if you're god. looking to live to be a hundred, you may want to watch more than your diet. A study of people in a remote uh, Italian village who've lived past ninety found that they tend to have certain psychological traits in common, including stubbornness and resilience. A study published in the International. Uh, psychogeriatrics analyzed the mental and physical health of 29 elderly villagers between 90 and 101 in um, in an area known for a prevalence of having people over 90. They filled out uh, standardized questionnaires and interviewed when were interviewed on topics such as migration, traumatic events and beliefs, and also Younger family members were asked to just talk about their older relatives, which I thought was kind of cool. That's neat. So what it's saying is that in order to, like, make it to your 90s and 100, like, you've you've had to go through some shit. And um, (laughs) (laughs) you you need to be, you know, resilient and flexible, you know, and you have to be able to Mm -hmm. balance the two, those two opposite things in order to kind of make it. You got to roll with the punches. Yeah, one thing I did think was interesting about it is because there was an interview process that meant that that and that they had to give consent for this um, survey. I mean that it, they automatically had to um, disqualify anybody who had dementia, right? Oh, yeah. So, so I just thought that was interesting. Um, you know, just like thinking about it. <laughs> but like we've done a lot of like uh, research on like people who lived into their 90s of like what they about their physical health but also um looking at the importance of like the mental health with it as well um because you um even as they're and they were compared to other people in their village that were uh younger being um i think 51 to 70 51 to 75 (laughs) those younger family um (laughs) And it, they unsurprisingly discovered that the 90 to 100 year olds were in less, uh, physical, uh, were less physically healthy. Um, but they tend okay. to have a stronger, um, mental health. Um, I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's like as we grow older, hopefully we grow wiser. And if we didn't, maybe we tend to die before 90. I will say that, like, I feel like I see this study every year, too. It's either, like, the people in Okinawa or, like, some remote place that we haven't studied or somewhere else with a lot of sun, which just makes me jealous because I live in Portland. But um, this is only, what, 20, 29 people? Yeah. So I, I feel like this is a little, I mean, very interesting and fun and 
click-worthy, but really more anecdotal than truly, like, you know, what can we... What can we generalize about this population that we could use for everyone else? I mean, it's possible that those factors are helpful, and I would imagine that they probably are. But I feel like if I would have said, Lara, what do you think is going to help you if you need to live to be 100? You'd say resilience and confidence and being able to, to do your own thing and being able to weather adversity. Like, we could have guessed that these were that these were all necessary traits for that right yeah i'm not that impressed i plan to live until 113 really because like what at 114 life's just not worth it anymore no at 113 i will have seen three centuries oh wait i have to be 115 damn it I don't know if I can make it that long. Sometimes I'm my just, knees hurt. <laughs> I'm just saying, I figured that out at age 13 when they interviewed, like, a lady who had seen three centuries, but she was, like, 101, you know, she was yeah. born. She didn't remember the first century that she saw. So yeah, I thought I for lame. sure could get an interview at the next millennia. <laughs> if, there, if there still is journalism at that point, man, these days sometimes I wonder... I mean, I will get, like, my hologram self in in your home, coming at you live and in, and in person. <laughs> woo, woo. <laughs> woo. The, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a 3D, it's a 3D sound effect for, for audio. Uh, and what do you think, what do you think a 113-year-old you is going to have to say about the late 1990s? Like, what are you going to remember about the 90s by then? I mean. What do you remember about the 90s now? I mean, most of it. I mean, I'm trying to, like, but, like, what stands out to you? Like, what was going on in the 90s? I Desert mean, there was... Storm. There was, like, the grunge thing happened. Headbands. Uh, headbands were really big. Scrunchies were huge. Pogs. Pogs, yes. I got banned from my school. President uh, Bush was the thing, right? No, he was 2000, sweetie. Get with the... Get with the, the old Bush. The old Bush. Was he the eighties? I don't even know, man. I mean, I'm looking at like ninety two is probably the earliest I can remember, and that would be Bill Clinton. So, I'm just all saying. right, all right. George Herbert Walker Bush, nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety three. Boom! I was eight years old, and I have a legitimate nineties memory. There you go. I was five, so. <laughs> But well, you obviously were not push. paying attention. You were too busy collecting your pogs and your slap bracelets and your Super Nintendo I don't know. and whatnot. Y2K was going to be huge. Oh my god, you remember that? <laughs> there were like four disaster movies about Y2K. I know. And then nothing happened. Nothing think, fucking happened. I think if they end up calling us the worst generation, they're going to point to that and just be like, they never cared about anything that mattered. All they ever did was buy water and toilet paper in December of 1999. <laughs> Although, I guess, to be fair, that wasn't our generation. That was our parents. We were just, like, running around with snotty noses and stuff, right? Yeah, just because we're called millennials didn't mean that we were in charge of the millennium. Dude, super side note, but Googling George H.W. Bush right now, not cool. Not This dude's been up to some bad stuff. Okay. I don't want to get into it. I'm just, I'm just going to say one thing. The word groped is in every headline. Oh, it's nothing sacred. Okay. 
David Copperfield. Oh, man. <laughs> man. All right. So what's your current medical fascination? Um, well, so, you know, I got my watch that's tracking my heart rate. And I'm wanting to know how to figure out my maximum heart rate because, like, I don't exactly know how heart rate training works, but I'm about to figure it out slash ask my amazing PT how how to how to do it. But so the watch calculates max heart rate seemingly by taking 220 minus your age. And I don't know if you know this, but that is not a super accurate measurement of what your maximum heart rate really is. So it tends to be like, did you know that? No. Um, yeah, it tends to be more accurate when you're in your 20s and 30s, I think. But as people get older, it kind of diverges and it's not really that accurate anymore. So to make a long story short, the watch has calculated for me these five heart rate zones, you know, and supposedly you have some days that are hard and some days that are easy and you want to stay in the zone. So it makes in the proper zone. So it makes a difference what the max is because everything is based on that. And yet they're using this number that may or may not be accurate. So just the idea of basing all my training on something that's like questionably accurate is driving me crazy. Um, and there are a number of ways to figure out your maximum heart rate and none of them sound particularly tolerable. Like you just do X, Y, and Z as fast as you can, as hard as you can. And, um, you know, I did a time trial in swim practice last Saturday with this group that I train with and the watch does not measure your heart rate in water unless you buy a special chest strap, which I'm not doing because it's incredibly unfashionable. So point being (laughs) that my heart was basically beating out of my chest by the end of this like it was like this timed 400 meter swim and I was more or less racing someone and I really wish I had the heart rate from that but I don't know how I'm going to figure this out and and I just like I also want to know like do other people figure theirs out or are they just using are they just using a number that's not very that's not very accurate because I mean I want the I want the exact accurate number, right? And I also mm-hmm. just want to know how to use heart rate stuff for training in general. So I've been doing some Googling, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. And there's and more frustratingly, there's like different ways, like so different people like some people are like, Oh, there's seven zones or there's three or there's whatever and so it's like I wanna use the materials I've already been using, but maybe the watch and like the book that I've been using which is uh, the triathletes training Bible, like that might not necessarily be the same, like the way that they are calculating zones. And so when one person says like, it's a recovery week versus the other source, like it could be different. And if you want to make this even more complicated, I do like a group bike workout that's, that's based on a cyclical training cycle where like certain weeks are recovery and we use heart rate zones. And I don't really know what that's based on either. And so I'm either about to have like a great training year or like a terrible training year, but all we really know is that this watch is going to be attached to me like 24 seven until <laughs> for the duration of 2018, I would say. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any ideas for me about this heart rate thing? Like how am I supposed to figure this out? I would ask your wonderful PT. I know he is pretty wonderful. Um, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, I want to have a more specific question than what do I do, but I think I could I think I could hone in on it. I'm, I'm not sure the way that I just presented it here was particularly succinct. So, <laughs> sorry. Sorry to our listeners. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know, Laura. Well, so Laura, tell me this. What, what one thing do you think is most interesting from our podcast today? Or like that was intriguing to you as you were finding stories? Um, I think the most interesting thing to me was, um, just kind of how articles get copied and pasted and moved around and quote each other. I I find that very interesting about what (laughs) makes news versus what doesn't, you know? Yeah. I know. Or like how how much the same info over and over again. Yeah. And how much that can perpetuate incorrect information at times or even like you read a story and you think oh like this person wrote this and you realize oh wait three quarters of it is like quoted from another source so really they kind of wrote around that and then they wrote a paragraph and yeah i think that's a survival technique by the media as well yeah for sure yeah so you don't you didn't think my watch was the most important story i'm i'm just i'm shocked (laughs) gonna have to do more research i think (laughs) I think that's enough bad patienting for one week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair enough, guys. Laura's done. She's worried I'm going to keep talking about the watch. So um, you can rate, share, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or the iPhone podcast app, as well as Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at hello at thebadpatient.com with your questions and comments. We love hearing from you. You can connect with us on Twitter at thebadpatient, and you can listen directly at thebadpatient.com. We want to give a special shout out and thank you to Evan Schaefer, who composed our theme song. You can listen to all of his music at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. And as always, yeah, thanks, Evan. As always, the best thing you can do for us is to pass along the podcast URL and share it with your friends who might also be interested, um, along with passing along your feedback. Until next time, we are bad patient. Malpractice makes perfect. <laughs>